Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The War of 1812. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Election of 1808. The Election of 1808 pitted the Democratic-Republican James Madison, the architect of the Constitution, against the Federalist Charles C. Pinckney of South Carolina. You do not need to know much about this election, except that Madison handily won with 122 to 47 electoral votes, and he won the popular vote 124,000 to 62,000 votes. He was the third Virginian to win election, solidifying the Virginia dynasty of presidents. If you advance to the next slide, you will also see that Madison won the election of 1812 against the fusion candidate DeWitt Clinton of New York. If you take a look at the electoral map, you will notice that DeWitt Clinton won most of New England, while Madison won the Mid-Atlantic states, the West, and the South, and this would create political problems later on during the war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Madison's Presidency. For such a remarkable constitutional scholar and legislator, Madison had a most unremarkable presidency. During his tenure, British impressment and humiliation of the United States continued. Because of this, he passed Macon's Bill No. 2, which replaced the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809, again limiting American commercial ties with belligerent nations. The support for war against Britain continued to escalate, and eventually, war hawks in Congress won out. The War of 1812 came to dominate his presidency, and he had little major achievements outside of that conflict. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Casus Belli. There were numerous causes of the War of 1812. Indirectly, economic issues created by the reduction in commerce due to British impressment and Jackson's embargo created this war. Now, while this was economically burdensome, it also created the industry necessary to produce artillery and weapons which would prove deadly effective at battles like New Orleans against the British. Another indirect cause of the war was British resistance to westward expansion, as they kept British troops in forts in the Old Northwest of modern-day Midwest, basically around Ohio and Michigan. The last indirect cause was American neutrality in the Napoleonic Wars, which resulted in the targeting of American shipping by British and the French. There were also several direct causes for the war. First, the Leopard-Chesapeake incident, where a British frigate fired upon an American ship of war, which sparked a diplomatic incident between Great Britain and the United States. Next, the Embargo Act, which angered the British and led to more high-handed tactics on their part. Lastly, a war with a Native American confederacy led by the warrior Tecumseh created a great deal of tension. Tecumseh was a Shawnee chief, and he created a confederacy aimed at resisting the expansion of Americans into the Old Northwest. He saw how Americans had broken every treaty they made with natives, and was angered by the continual encroachment of Americans into his native lands. In August of 1810, he began Tecumseh's War, which lasted for the next three years. One of the largest battles of Tecumseh's war was the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811. In that battle, 
future president William Henry Harrison defeated the Native Confederacy under Tecumseh's brother, Tanks Awatawa. Tecumseh continued to search for allies after his brother's defeat, and ultimately, he was defeated at the Battle of the Thames in 1813 during the War of 1812. Now, many congressional war hawks believed the British had been involved with this Native Confederacy, but in reality, that aid did not come until the middle of the War of 1812, when the Shawnee and the British made a formal alliance. Warhawks in Congress, led by Henry Clay of Kentucky and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, wanted to punish the British for humiliating the country from impressment, as well from their supposed involvement with the Shawnee Confederacy. Warhawks were opposed in Congress by doves, or advocates of peace, like Senator Daniel Webster, a Federalist from New Hampshire. In the end, the Warhawks whipped the country up into such a fever that Madison acquiesced and led Congress to declare war on Great Britain in June of 1812. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The War of 1812. The War of 1812 lasted from June 1812 until February 1815. In many ways, this was a sideshow, as Great Britain and much of the world was focused on Napoleon, who had invaded Russia that same year. But we still have to ask ourselves, what the heck was the United States thinking? We only had 16 ships to the British 1,000, and predictably, the British had a lot of early successes early on. They managed to defeat the Americans all along the U.S. border with Canada, from Michigan to Maine. And when Americans attempted to invade Canada, they easily defeated the attack, which bolstered Canadian national identity. In the late summer of 1814, the British invaded the District of Columbia. They defeated a small American force outside of Washington, D.C., and then captured the seat of government. James and Dolly Madison fled into the Virginia countryside, and Dolly was responsible for saving important portraits, including one of George Washington. The British then entered the White House, ate a meal that had been prepared for the Madisons, and burned the White House and the Capitol to the ground. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Anthem. Later that year, the British Navy bombarded Fort McHenry near Baltimore, Maryland, on the Chesapeake Bay. Nearby, Francis Scott Key, a lawyer, watched the bombardment through the night. The next morning, Key saw the American flag was still flying above the fort, and he ended up writing a poem called The Defense of Fort McHenry. It later became known as the Star-Spangled Banner and was put to the music of a popular English drinking song. It became America's national anthem in the 1930s, beating out other music, such as My Country Tis of Thee, in America the Beautiful. There has been some modern controversy over the anthem. Some professional sports players have kneeled during the anthem to protest police brutality against African Americans. But a smaller and more radical group accused the anthem of being racist, because in the third stanza, which is never sung, it reads, quote, No refuge save for the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave, end quote. Now, groups like the California branch of the NAACP have stated it is racist because it mentions slaves. 
but some historians argue that the anthem refers to the British impressment of sailors as virtual slaves and their practice of hiring mercenaries to use against the Americans. It is also important to note that many African Americans fought in the War of 1812 on the U.S. side, and while many were poorly treated, others went on to have a full and prosperous life as a result of their service. One such man is called Peter Calder, a black veteran who became a respected scout and bearhound breeder in Arkansas after the war, who we will also talk about in a few lectures. The point is that while we need to be respectful of offensive statements and inclusive to all communities of citizens that reside in this great land of ours, sometimes we need to take a step back and contextualize history before we go all PC principle on it. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Sirens of Disunion. Due to many defeats, the war was very unpopular in parts of the United States, especially in New England. New England Federalists in Congress had voted unanimously against the war, and many New Englanders had simply wanted to put up with the British impressment to keep commerce alive. Some New Englanders even sold goods to the British during the war. But a small minority began talking about states' rights in secession. In December 1814, the Hartford Convention was held from December 15, 1814 to January 5th. 1815. As the war dragged on, New England extremists became more vocal, and this convention was attended by delegates from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Vermont. The purpose was to discuss their grievances and seek redress for their wrongs. Their immediate goal was to secure financial assistance from Washington due to the British blockading menace on New England shores. Though the meeting was led by moderate Federalists hoping to aid this cause, a minority of radical delegates urged secession. Instead of such a radical move, the convention recommended several amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which included the repeal of the Three-Fifths Compromise, and it would also require a two-thirds congressional vote for any embargo, any admission of a Western state to the Union, and a declaration of war. And honestly, repealing the Three-Fifths Compromise and getting congressional majorities to vote on declarations of war probably isn't a bad idea. Regardless, the third amendment they wanted to pass sought to limit the term of presidents in order to avoid a dynasty of Jeffersonian Republicans. Lastly, this convention declared that states could nullify federal laws. And this should remind you of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions that were put forward the theory of nullification. The convention concluded and was ready to present their demands to Washington when news of a late battle doomed not only their efforts, but the entire Federalist Party. Please advance to the next slide entitled, New Orleans. In February of 1815, news of the United States' victory at the Battle of New Orleans arrived in Washington, D.C., on January 8th of that year, General Andrew Jackson led an outnumbered, ragtag, poorly trained and equipped American army of 4,000 people against a highly trained British force of 8,000 soldiers. Jackson's force consisted of freed and escaped slaves, Native American allies, pirates, debtors, 
criminals, and a small contingent of American volunteers. The battle is remembered as a victory of the American riflemen over masked British infantry. In fact, the British assault was turned back due to industrial artillery, which was built in New England factories as a result of the Embargo Act. The British suffered over 2,000 casualties to 80 American casualties, and Jackson got the nickname of Old Hickory. He became a national hero, and it launched a future political career, all despite the fact that the war was already technically over by the time the battle was fought. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Peace. The Treaty of Ghent, signed on Christmas Eve 1814, ended hostilities between the United States and Great Britain before the Battle of New Orleans even took place. The treaty arrived in D.C. nearly the same time as the news of Jackson's victory. The Treaty of Ghent was essentially an armistice and kept the status quo antebellum. Both sides agreed to stop fighting and to restore conquered territory. There was no mention of pre-war U.S. grievances, of impressment, Native American attacks, the orders in council, illegal searches and seizures, and confiscations. Americans maintained their right to fish off the Canadian coast, and some Americans rejoiced since they expected to lose territory after so many defeats. In reality, the Americans got lucky, because a few months later, in June 1815, the British and the Prussians defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. So the British no longer had any reason to interfere with U.S. shipping, but they also could have turned their full attention against the United States if the war had kept going. Americans also got lucky that most of Europe was involved in the Congress of Vienna, which attempted to make sense of the post-Napoleonic affairs of the European continent. So they didn't have much interest in interfering with American affairs. Again, internationally speaking, the War of 1812 was a sideshow to the Napoleonic Wars. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Consequences of War. After the war, there emerged a strong spirit of nationalism in the United States. Even though the war was a stalemate, and arguably a loss, Jackson's victory allowed Americans to believe that they had won the war. Also, the English had tried to invade, and Americans had fended them off again, and this led to the label of the conflict as the Second War for Independence. This revived an intense American hatred of the British, and mutual suspicion would last for decades. Another consequence of the war was Canadian patriotism and nationalism was boosted. Some say it was the birth of the Canadian nation, as their defense against an American invasion solidified their national identity. Another consequence of the war was the rush bagot Treaty of 1817, which severely limited naval armament on the Great Lakes. Combined with a later treaty that confirmed the United States-Canadian border, it led to the demobilization along America's northern boundary, so that by 1870, the United States and Canada shared the single longest unfortified border in the world of over 5,500 miles long. Another consequence of the war was the westward outlook of the American nation. 
Americans learn the lesson that Washington had stated, to avoid European conflicts. So Americans looked to expand west, and in turn, this confirmed the Jacksonian legacy of looking westward that was enshrined in his Louisiana Purchase. The last consequence of the war was the demise of the Federalist Party. The Hartford Convention was the death knell of the Federalist Party. In the election of 1816, the Virginian James Monroe crushed his Federalist opponent. The illusion of American victory, thanks to Jackson, made the Federalists look like a bunch of defeatist, secessionist traitors. They had already been declining, but this was the last straw that broke the camel's back. In addition, the exaggerated accounts of treasonous Federalists further hurt the party. And until 1815, most talk of nullification and secession came from New England more than any other section, including the South. But after the war, that talk would move southward, as we will see in future lectures. Combined with the flouting of the Jeffersonian embargo and the crippling of the U.S. war effort, those were the two most damaging acts of nullification in the United States prior to the events that led up to the American Civil War. Without a Federalist Party to confront them, the Republicans became known as the National Republicans, and the country was dominated by only one political party for the next half decade. Lastly, without an opposition party, some Republicans would adopt the Federalist ideas of a strong and active federal government, which later led to factionalism and the rise of the Second American Party system under Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.